You're listening to the Recovery Roadrunners podcast, the sobriety podcast for runners who want to get inspired, get informed, and start seeing results fast. Every Monday, we'll share current events, personal stories, and research on how to get sober, stay sober, and run smarter so that you can up-level your life now. Hey, everybody. I'm your host, Amber Graziano, founder and president of Recovery Roadrunners, certified running and sobriety coach, K-12 master teacher, and sober mother of two. Today's guest is somebody who I'm very inspired by and, to be honest, totally in awe of. I'm grateful to welcome Kristen Fuller of Forward Progression Coaching today to our podcast. Kristen isn't just a certified emotional healing and recovery coach. She's a beacon of resilience and transformation. Having recently discovered the power of running as a gateway to sobriety, commitment, and healing from trauma. She's a mother, a runner, fierce leader, and a friend. Kristen, your journey is so inspiring to me, especially as you lace up for your very first 5K. And I pulled a quote from your website that I love. When we numb the pain of grief, traumatic events, and difficult emotions, we are also numbing the joy, passion, and excitement in our lives. I love that, Kristen. And I know that you've been sober for three years and running is new to you. So welcome to our podcast. How are you? Introduce yourself. Oh, Amber, thank you for such a warm welcome. And I receive, I I have little tears. I receive everything that you said with so much gratitude. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I meant every word. Mm, So touched. I love that our paths crossed in the sober space, in the coaching space, in so many different arenas that you and I are just two peas in a pod. And I'm so grateful to do this work with you. So thank you for having me. Me too. I feel the same exact way. I feel like we're like soul sisters and best friends, even though we just recently became connected. (laughs) Yep. Thank you, Gabe. (laughs) Yeah. I feel the same way. And on this journey, one thing I've learned is a lot of people, when they first stop drinking, they're one of their biggest fears that they bring to the table is I'm going to lose all my friends. I'm not going to be able to function or go to social settings and no one's going to want to hang out with me when I'm sober. And to that, I say, I'd rather have four quarters than a hundred pennies. In other words, I'd rather have four I have more than four, thankfully, but I'd rather have four aligned, loving, present, mindful, committed people in my life than a hundred maybe half-assed friends that I go to karaoke and drink with. (laughs) I'd rather seek soul connections that nurture me, feed me, empower me than have hundreds of just miscellaneous friendships slash acquaintances. I seek out friendship like the one that we have where we're so aligned. Me too. It just reminds me of my old drinking buddies who I stumbled upon in the bar or wherever I was. And it's like, oh, we're best friends now, but are we really? It's so superficial and we're only bonding over drinks, but 
the friends that I've met in sobriety, like you and the people in triple R, we have everything in common and we connect on such a deeper level. Another thing I tell my students and clients is just like trees with their leaves in the fall, they have to drop their leaves. And if they don't, the tree will die in the winter because the leaves take up too much of the moisture. In order for self-preservation to stay to its commitment to keep growing and be a tree and give shade, it has to let go of the leaves. When we are in this transition in our lives and it's time for us to let go of those leaves, those old drinking buddies, maybe a toxic friendship or a toxic partnership. Sometimes people have to drop the leaves of family members. When we do that, it creates space for what is meant for you, for the people who are meant for you, for the souls that will nurture you to be part of your existence. And that is one of my favorite things I tell myself on an ongoing basis, because there is grief when you have to let go of an old friendship or an old relationship. But after that grief subsides, the expansion that is left behind creates room for more people to come toward. And it's such an interesting and gorgeous process I've seen over the past three years. Oh my gosh, that hits home. I feel that on a deep level. And I'm thinking of people that I've had to let go of, and it's been so hard for me. On the other side of that, all of these new people that came in, it's just such a beautiful process. And it's hard to imagine before you do it, that it's not going to be terrible, that it could be better. But in sobriety, we we learn that it is, it is so much better. Kristen, you have so much to teach us and share with us today. You told me that you're passionately committed to ending the stigmas around mental health and addiction. So am I. That's why we're soul sisters. So let's start from the beginning, Kristen. What should we know about you? And what do you want to tell us today? Ooh, <laughs> that's a loaded question, girl. Just hey, now. kidding. I would say what I would love for you to know is that only three short years ago, the woman that is sitting here, not even the imagination, not even the dream, not even the idea of the woman that I am today existed. I'm not saying that to brag. I'm saying that to give hope to those who feel the most broken. I responded to someone in our community, in your community yesterday that said, I'm, I'm so broken and just my heart and body remember what it felt like. There was a song by Pink that came out when I was in my early sobriety. And she says, let the walls crack. That's how the light gets in. I think of that every time that I go through another little transition or a period of feeling very vulnerable or very broken, which thankfully these days is few and far between. By saying I didn't even have an idea of who I could be today, that's because three years ago, I couldn't walk the dog around the block without drinking. My fear 
of anxiety and strangers and even neighbors, my fear of pretty much everything outside the door of my home had me so incapacitated that either a drug or alcohol was my means of being in the world at all times. And that is the only way I knew to cope with my PTSD from being sexually abused. It was beyond broken. It was almost, to put it into honest terms, it was clinging to death. I was committing suicide by installment is how I describe it. Like making little layaway payments on an ongoing basis toward my demise. So to be so full of light and excitement and abundance in such a short amount of time can prove to anybody listening, no matter how broken you are, if you are breathing, you are worthy of healing and it is available to you. Oh, I love that. I saw that post and it broke my heart and I felt it too. I I am broken. I was broken. In, in a lot of ways, I'm still broken. I've gone through a terrible divorce. I spent 25 years as a heavy, heavy drinker, suffering in silence. I've been hurt by people, by things. You know, I I have trauma. You have trauma. I went through something last year, Kristen, that shook me to the core. And thank God I was sober because I could just see myself drinking around the clock to numb out away from those feelings. Those feelings that I felt last year were some of the worst feelings that I've ever felt. And I experienced them with a sober mind. There were times, you can ask Vinny, I felt like I was going insane. My heart was breaking. My mind was breaking. So Kristen, Tell us, you mentioned sexual abuse. Tell us some of the ways that you have been broken and how did you recover from that? There are a few different times that really stand out in my mind. I've been abused three different times in my life at six, 15 and a half, and then 36. The one at 36 is the one that set into motion my addiction like from zero to 60. And that's because when I was abused, I was married and I had two young children. It was part self-preservation and part family preservation and part marriage preservation. I just covered everything with a shroud, basically, and pretended as if nothing happened. So I kept the brutal details, the physical pain, the violence all inside for two years before I told anybody besides my little brother. For two years, I existed as a partner who couldn't be intimate without being on alcohol or Ambien, who couldn't have a loving gesture like him putting his arms around me while I'm making dinner. I could I couldn't have and if someone came up behind me, I would lose my crap. So I just pushed any chance of 
love or intimacy or connection completely out of my space unless I was under the influence, which meant I was under the influence pretty much every day. And this went on eight, nine years. In the meantime, the toll that not just the drinking and using drugs did to my body, but the toll what we know about trauma is it's stored in your body. And that started to manifest in physical illnesses. Like my whole reproductive system was filled with thankfully benign, but still cysts and fibroids. I was like, I measured like five months pregnant, even though I I was not. <laughs> it was all tumors and fibroids. And this went on for six years that I just suffered because I felt like that was how 40 was supposed to look. This is what I signed up for. And I had just resigned to the fact that I would ever be available for true intimacy, for touch, for desire, for pleasure. I had written all of it off. Basically decided that unless I was under the influence, it wasn't available to me. Fast forward to December 26, 2020, I wouldn't consider it a suicide attempt, although I would consider it extremely reckless behavior. However, this reckless behavior was a little game of Russian roulette that I played all the time in 2020. It was at the highest extent that Christmas night because I drank so much and I took so many sleeping pills that when I woke up the next day around 11, I was pretty surprised to wake up. I was even further surprised when I went out into the kitchen to make a mimosa because that's what I did every day. And my ex-husband was like, we need to have a chat. Your drinking is completely out of control. And I just answered. I know I need to cut down. And he flat out looked me in the eye and said, you're killing yourself. Wow. Kristen, I am so sorry that you went through three different sexual abuse traumas. Oh, I'm so sorry, Kristen. You, like I said earlier, you are so strong and a beacon of hope now for other people. Your story I resonate with that because you were protecting yourself. Yeah. You you were pretending like nothing happened because life goes on. You had a job, you had a husband, you had children to take care of. So you pretended like nothing happened. You dove deeper into your substance of choice, alcohol, by having more drinks and more drinks and escaping from reality just to protect yourself and continue on living. And as a mom, I totally get that. I did the same thing in my own way. And what you said reminds me of a book, The Body Keeps the Score, which is such a good book. It's just these feelings. I mean, when we pretend like nothing happens and we just go on with our life, it's so lonely. We are isolating ourselves from the whole world. Wow. I mean, you said that it took a few years to get through this and then your ex-husband confronted you. So 
tell us how that went when you were confronted, because I was never confronted like that. It was a really hard day, obviously. It was it was a hard day physically because it was an absolute miracle that I woke up. Because at the end, it wasn't just alcohol. I was abusing stimulants, sleeping pills, anxiety, like I, you name it, I was messing around with it. So it was pretty bad at the end. He didn't even know about that part at the time when he said, you're, you're killing yourself. He showed me that he had laid out all of the bottles in our recycle on a table for just one week. From Friday to Friday, there were 18 bottles. And seeing them all laid out like that, <laughs> pretty astounding. Yet what I know to be true, that was just what I had here at the house. That didn't count what I had at friends' houses or, I mean, it was COVID, so you couldn't really go to the bars, but we found workarounds. Like that didn't even tell the whole story, nor did it even shed any light on the drugs I was messing around with. So from his perception, you're killing yourself. And he only knew about the tip of the iceberg. He was spot on. He didn't let me brush under the rug, thankfully. And he also had my children come out to the garage to witness him telling me this ends now, or we're going to change our custody agreement. That was the clincher for me. Unfortunately, the you're killing yourself didn't hold a lot of weight because I didn't value myself. But one thing I never stopped loving or valuing, thankfully, is my children. So when he, I don't like the word threatened because he had every right. When he stated that this will affect my being around my children, that's when I snapped to it and, and agreed to 90 days, 90 days of rehab, 90 days of sobriety. That's it. Fine. I'll do it. Furious, pissed off, pouring all the alcohol in the house down the drain. At the end of 90 days, from thinking about this moment always gets me a little bit teary. So <sighs> when I wrote March 26 on the calendar, it was almost as if I wrote run 300 miles on March 26. Like it was that insane of a goal when I couldn't even go 90 minutes without drinking or ingesting something. How in the hell was I going to do 90 days? But I had to. And what I learned along the way is as that 90 day milestone came closer, my PTSD symptoms became almost non-existent. My weight had dropped. I was drinking almost a pound or more worth of calories nightly. <laughs> like, so no wonder, <laughs> like my mental health, my meds weren't working. My weight was out of control. My fibroids, my hormones were affected. Like the amount of poison I was putting in my body I can't believe I saw a turnaround in only 90 days, but it was a massive 180. That's when I decided I'm I'm going to keep this going. And then when I hit a year, I was like, nope, still love this. We're going to keep going. <laughs> so I just choose to keep going, even though 
I feel like I'm at a point where I'm starting to branch out. My tree is branching out a little bit, not so firmly rooted in recovery per se, but branching out to healing, growth. I've been working on my spiritual alignment. I've been working on my self-love journey. Yes, recovery is still the foundation of the healing work that I do. I just love that now it's not, I have to use my craving card every day, or I have to go to a meeting every day. Like I don't, I don't have that constraint on myself anymore because I've been able to set down or even exchange pieces of time for other things that allow me to grow. So I'm really grateful for that. We have so much in common from motherhood to running to our spiritual side to being coaches. What we have in common really is we both decided to get sober to save our families or our children. My children inspired me to get sober. They were one and two years old and I could not have done it without them, Kristen, because I didn't have it in me. I didn't have that self-love or that value. I didn't see it as a problem until I had kids. They are the most important thing to me. We have so many listeners who have kids. So can you talk a little bit about how your drinking affected you as a mom? And after you got sober, what kind of mother did you turn into? Oh, I love that question. My drinking affected me as a mom, especially after COVID happened, because my kids would be at the dining table doing their homework and stuck to the laptop for seven hours. I thought I was being real sneaky having wine in my bedroom so that when I came out to check on them, how's your homework or or whatever, I didn't have to drive anywhere. I didn't have to pick them up. I didn't have, there were no activities. Like I had free reign basically to drink all day long. And I did. And the result of that is I had to then nap pretty much every afternoon between two and five. If I'm being very honest, my kids raised themselves in the last six months of 2020. Of course, their father was involved, but he was at work and they were home homeschooling themselves. They didn't have a mother. They had someone that went to the grocery store and made dinner, but they didn't have a mother. When I started to realize that, the first time it really came clear to me was my son is an avid skater and he loves going to the skate park. And before he had his license, he would always call my ex-husband to pick him up in the evening. He would never call me to pick him up because he knew that I couldn't drive. And this hit me like a ton of bricks. I was about five days sober and he called at night and said, mom, dad's not answering. Can you pick me up at the skate park? And I could tell in his voice, there was trepidation. And I'm like, that's weird. Why is he weird? Oh, I've never picked up my son at night in his life at the skate park. That was a freaking wake-up call. Like, holy, I, I just couldn't believe that for the first time in his life, 
I was able to drive and pick him up at night at the skate park. And that kind of started a, a shame spiral. Like, okay, what else did I screw up? And I've learned that I'm no longer available for that shame spiral. I have apologized to my children. I've had both of them tell how they felt as children of parents that both of us have problems with addiction. And they were very honest in their podcast interviews. And I'm so grateful that they feel like they can be because they didn't have a mouthpiece back then. We didn't talk about addiction and stuff like that in our home like we do today. Even though their dad had an addiction recovery journey as well, it just wasn't talked about. And I don't know why in hindsight, but we talk about it a lot now, that's for sure. But they got their mom back. They got their mom back. They got not just their mom back. They got a different version of a mom. And this version is mindful. And this version is present. And this version is plugged into them and their cool little lives that they're carving out for themselves. And do I have days where I'm like, damn, I wish I did this sooner. Absolutely. But most days I tell myself, but you did it now. You did it now. Our kids are so lucky. No matter when we choose to get sober, it's the right time for us. It's never too late. And I know the feeling of I lost so many years with my kids. You got sober during COVID. I was fortunate enough to get sober before COVID. I think COVID would have completely unraveled me. I would have been drinking around the clock. I was just like you. I had to take a nap every day. I took the mom nap when my kids were napping. After I got sober, I started to see the most beautiful things happening inside my home with my kids. Like, for example, looking at them in the eyes and actually listening to their little stories and laughing with them, sitting on the floor with them, playing their little games. And we used to love to run around outside and as I was drinking, I was always drunk and stumbling around and just being kind of careless and just not really paying attention to them, just being in the same space. In sobriety, I remember it was the first week I was sober and I was chasing them around the backyard like I did every night, but I was there. Yeah. I was there for it. I was so present. It was such a beautiful moment for me. I noticed how cute they were, how much fun we were actually having. We were engaging and I felt like the world's best mom for looking at them in the eyes, listening to their stories, being able to drive them places. It might seem silly, but these things are everything. Yes. Like I said earlier, you inspire the hell out of me and I am so in awe of you, Kristen. And it's from watching you on Facebook do your live videos. The way that you show up on camera is amazing. You have this on-camera presence that is confident, passionate. You show up as the expert in everything that you're talking about. So let's talk a little bit about how you help people in your coaching business. How did you get started as a sobriety coach? 
I really appreciate your kind words about my content because there are times where I'm like, are people really enjoying this or are they like, here's Kristen again? <laughs> so thank you for that affirmation. It feels good. I originally went back to school when I was 39 to become a therapist and I got my degree in psychology and I was going on to graduate school to become a licensed MFT, marriage family therapist. Along the way, I found out that I had already taken out too much money in student loans. So there was no way to pay for grad school. And I was like devastated, like, okay, now I'm going to be a bartender forever. I'd been a bartender for 15 years, long time. I had kind of just resigned myself. And then a really good friend of mine who is a psychologist said, you know, I just want to float this out there to you, but you can become certified in coaching and start coaching and then you could pay for grad school. And I was like, all right, I'll kind of look into it. So in looking into it, I found a program with a school called CTI here in California, but they're all over the world. The coaching school had a component called process, which allows coaches to ethically and safely help their client move through trauma. Not necessarily sit with it, process it, that's the work of therapy, but safely to carry them along the way. And I was all in. I thought, yes, this is what I want to do as a therapist. So this is the perfect way for me to get my feet wet with coaching. And then once I learned how different the coaching relationship is versus the therapist relationship and how much freedom I would have as a coach, as a licensed therapist, I couldn't work outside of California. I can't take my clients hiking. I can't be bedside if they're in the hospital. Like all of these things that I love, I wouldn't be able to do if I had gone and become a licensed therapist. Talk about obstacles pointing you in the direction you're meant to be. That was such, <laughs> such a universal shift for me to choose coaching because now in hindsight, I think as a therapist, I would feel so like boxed in and I love the flexibility and the freedom I have as a coach. I totally yeah. agree. Yeah. And I believe that everyone can benefit from having a coach a teacher, a mentor. In the past, I've had several coaches for various topics too. I've had a run coach. I've had a sobriety coach. I've signed up for tons of different workshops because I am always learning. I love to learn. I love to grow. I love to feed my mind with every single topic that I'm interested in. If there's a workshop, I'm going to sign up for it. If there's a coaching opportunity, I'm going to sign up for it. So Kristen, in your practice, how do you incorporate physical activities like running and yoga into healing trauma and sobriety? For myself or for my clients? Either. For my clients, most of them have endured some sort of physical or sexual trauma. So when my recommendation or my homework has to do with physical activity, I make it very clear to them. This cannot be an activity that is a should. 
This cannot be an activity that you choose that is a punishment. We're no longer available for punishing our bodies. We're no longer available for dismissing that our body needs to move. Because without movement of some sort, that energy, that trauma, that stored and stuck like boulders is what it reminds me of, can't have access to leave your body. So I always encourage some sort of movement, half an hour a day, every day. Some people think that's extreme. In all honesty, if you can't carve out half an hour to nurture your body, to move your body, to breathe, I mean, these are, these are very simple things I'm asking. <laughs> I'm not saying go, go run 30 miles an hour for half an hour. I'm saying, I mean, you can, if that's nurturing to you, but I'm not there yet. But <laughs> if, if you love this way of moving your body for me is yoga for my best friend, it's Pilates. Like we choose things that we love and we look forward to, and then it becomes part of It's as normal as me waking up and brushing my teeth, half an hour for movement. When clients are given permission to choose movement that they love, there's a big difference because I feel like, especially when we've endured physical trauma, when we're told you have to do strength training, you have to do this or that. And then we do these things. And either we're doing them improperly or they just don't align with what we enjoy doing. Then we kind of check off all physical activity as, I don't want to do that. And what I teach my clients and students is you get to choose what you love. And then I encourage them to try things on that are outside the box, which is what you did to me. being the brilliant coach that you are, is I think you could sense that I was kind of standing on the edge, leaning over, looking into the running world, like, hmm, well, Amber does it and she seems real healthy. So, but I'm not a runner. (laughs) And by just trying it, try on Tai Chi. I did Krav Maga for a little while. Try on uh, walking meditations. Like, I don't care how you move your body. I'm not here to judge how you move your body. I'm just saying, give yourself the gift of moving your body in some way, shape, or form for half an hour a day. And anyone who says, I don't have half an hour in my day is not being honest with themselves. It doesn't even have to be a half an hour all at once. It could be 15 minute walk in the morning with your dogs and 15 minute yin yoga, nighttime yoga at night. That's all I'm asking. Move your body so that you can take further steps toward healing. I completely agree. I tell my clients the same thing because a lot of people come into recovery roadrunners and they're like, well, I used to be a runner, but I don't run anymore. I can't run anymore. I've been injured or it's been too long. I haven't run in 10 years. And so I like to tell people similar to what you're saying, 
do what you love, what makes you happy, what you feel comfortable with. Try going for a walk or a hike. Go ride your bike. Take your kids with you. Do a yoga class. Just do something physical so you start to sweat a little bit. You start to feel the endorphins come in. But I love how you started running this year, Kristen, as a result of our conversation on your podcast, Last Call with Kristen, which we recorded in January 2024. And to be honest with you, I was not trying to convince you to start running. I That was not even my intention. But just by talking about it and sharing my experience and how much I love running, I guess you felt inspired to give it a try. You felt like, oh, maybe I could do it. So <laughs> what advice would you give to somebody who does not identify as a runner, who has never run before, who thinks that they can't run, but they kind of want to start? What advice would you give to them to start a new running program? I'm going to use your words. <laughs> I'm going to use your words and say, first of all, is it something you want to do? If it's a should, if you're being told you should run or you're not going to lose weight unless you run, like if, if that is what you're coming to the running arena for, I don't think that's a good foot to start off on. However, if you're coming with a beginner's mind, with curiosity, not comparing yourself to anybody else. And I'm going to add this. Actually, you told me this. Have a childlike wonder and curiosity about it. Like, don't get caught up in what if someone sees me running or what do I look like? First of all, no one is watching. A. <laughs> so when people say dance like no one is watching, no one is watching. Okay. <laughs> Everyone's involved on their phone or in their own gate or run or whatever. Like, no one is watching. So do your thing because our time is very precious and frankly, very limited. So do things that you love and just try it on. And the great advice that you gave me that I'm still using is I did couch to 5k. It was perfect for me because even though I wasn't a couch potato, I certainly wasn't a runner. I was very fearful of running because I had an old belief and story that running would raise my cortisol. And anytime my cortisol is raised, it feels like fight or flight. And while there is some truth to that, what I know now being two and a half months into this journey is that that is like a feeling of creativity, of excitement. Like when I get that runner's high, it feels like I get all kinds of ideas for content. Like I have to like speak into my phone while I'm running sometimes. Remember to film this or remember to talk about that because I get just flooded with amazing downloads, if you will, of ideas, creativity, energy. I also do intermittent fasting and I run in a fasted state. And I will say my runs are all 40 minutes and under. So I don't want anyone to be like, oh my God, you're deflating. I'm I'm not, I'm fine. <laughs> I eat at 12. I eat till eight. Like I am not harming myself, but 
the energy that I'm able to harness between my run and intermittent fasting is like monumental. I literally feel like superwoman when I'm done running. So start slow, try it on, do what feels good to you. I will say a good pair of running shoes. And if you are female, a good bra makes all the difference in the world, all the difference in the world. Yes. You have to have the right gear and it's taking me years to find the right shorts, the right sports bra, the right hats, the right shoes, the right socks. But once you know, you know, and I'd be happy to share recommendations with anybody because I mean, it's a big deal. You have your phone, where are you going to put it? I mean, you could put it in your fanny pack. You could put it in your vest. Having the right gear makes all the difference. So if you need any recommendations, I'll gladly share some brands with you, Kristen. Do you see a connection between sobriety and running? Like, do you see the similarities between the two? I do. I think sobriety is a window into the life that is available to you if you stick on the path of sobriety. When you begin a sobriety journey, you experience a lot of things for the first time. My first sober Super Bowl, my first sober birthday, my first sober New Year's Eve. <laughs> like these things are firsts. I feel like the clarity that comes with sobriety, the mindfulness, the freedom, I also experience those in my running journey. Yes. So many similarities. And I, I always tell people who come to me and they're like, Amber, I went 30 days and then I had a slip. And now what do I do? And I'm like, well, let's say that you're running a marathon and you've run 20 miles and you fall down. Are you going to go back to the starting line or are you going to get up and finish your race? Sobriety is the same, right? You, if you have a slip, it's not the end of the world, but people are like, oh my God, all the progress is lost. I, I, I quit. I start over. I can't do it. I think that running helps us to build up the strength, build up the courage in ourselves to keep going in our sobriety journey. And that's why I'm so thankful for running because it empowers me physically, mentally, emotionally. And just like you said, when I'm out there running, I get that runner's high. I, I get those hits of dopamine that make me feel good. And I start to crave that. And when you're quitting drinking and you know, you, you remove the drink and you feel like there's no joy in your life anymore. It is really important to give yourself sober treats, to get those natural highs, those natural hits of dopamine. And that's what running does for me. So that's why I tell people, you got to get outside and move your body, run, walk, hike, bike, get those natural highs. And you won't feel so deprived. You won't feel like your life is so empty if you build it up with things that you love, activities you love, people that you love. There's a quote on your website that I love and I want to read it. You said, when we numb the pain of grief, traumatic events, and difficult emotions, we're also numbing the joy, passion, and excitement in our lives. 
How do you use that with your clients, Kristen? Because people come to me and they say, I just feel like it's too much to give up. I I don't want to let it go. It's the only thing good that I have in my life. And it's like, yeah, but when you drink, you're numbing out all of the good stuff too. So how do you coach people around actually taking the step to stop drinking and get around to the fear that they're missing out on something? That's a really good question because that's where almost all of my clients are when they are in front of me for the first time. What I've learned is for us as a coach to tell them, even if I use my own quote, even if I say, well, you've been numbing and, but you're also numbing the good. That sounds to them like the side of a cigarette package. (laughs) And what I mean by that is Do you know anybody who smokes who gives a crap about what it says on the side of the cigarette pack? I don't. They smoke because they want to, period, end of story. It doesn't matter what the side of the cigarette pack says. When a client sits with me for the first time, they don't care that they've been numbing their good emotions. They don't care that maybe they're in early stage cirrhosis of the liver They are in denial, first and foremost, most of the time, but they won't be moved by me telling them that. What ends up moving the needle for them is I ask them to list what they believe alcohol is doing for them. And as they create their list, it's one of their first pieces of homework. They start thinking about, oh, okay, yeah, alcohol helps me sleep. Alcohol helps me be social. Alcohol makes me feel sexy. Then when they come to their next session with me, we dispute. We myth bust. (laughs) We myth bust. And I teach them what is really going on with their sleep and why they're waking up every night at 3 a.m. Shaking, sweaty. I describe to them how those are many withdrawals all throughout the night. And then alcohol makes me feel sexy or alcohol makes me patient as a mom or sexy as a partner. I tell them the truth and we dispute the fact that alcohol makes them patient or alcohol makes them sexy because the truth is alcohol makes us myopic. The definition of myopic is lacking insight, lacking presence. So when you think alcohol's making you feel sexy, it's actually doing the opposite. It's making you unaware and lacking in insight. So once they learn factually, alcohol is not doing those things. Then they have some new beliefs to strengthen the foundation of their commitment to sobriety. Because as long as they're holding on to the belief that they're giving something up, They're pissy, they have an attitude, they're walking around feeling deprived. On our journey together, along with the tools that I teach them and the correct information about addiction and our brain and alcohol and drugs, then they can start to form their own beliefs. And that way, they're not moving in the world 
with white knuckles trying not to drink all the time. (laughs) They are moving throughout the world with freedom because they no longer see a glass of wine as something that they can't have. They see a glass of wine as something they don't wish to partake in because the life they've created over the past 30, 60, 90 days isn't worth that glass of wine. I love that. Change your beliefs and you will change your entire identity. And there's so many beliefs that we've had as children and young adults that we carry into today that are just not true. These lies that we tell ourselves, like you said, it helps me relax. It helps me socialize. It helps me sleep. Lie, lie, lie. Changing our beliefs is critical to staying sober and being a better runner. So let me ask you this, Kristen. How did you, because I know you struggled with this. You said, I'm not a runner. How did you change your identity and start telling yourselves, I am a runner and I am sober. I am a non-drinker because if people cannot believe inside their head that they're a runner or that they're a non-drinker, it's never going to happen. That's right. How do we get around that? I think the first step in getting around it is just leaning. I'll use a term my coach says. Lean into the bravery of what you're capable of. If I, I'll use my running journey as an example. I, the only exposure I had to running was through my ex-husband, who's one of my best friends. So, and we still live together. So we're around each other all the time. And he's like, yeah, I just ran 50 miles, blah, blah, blah. And here's the mountain I ran. And I'm like, ah, (laughs) I never looked at that. And he had so many complex ways of make, making sure he lands a certain way. Like all to me, although I'm inspired by him, I'm very proud of him. I looked at it as at that. I am not available for all that. That's way too much work. When I learned more about you and how you had such a compassionate and welcoming approach to running that I was like, oh, I don't have to use Gabe's definition of being a runner. I can find my own definition of being a runner. I'm no longer available for comparing myself to other people who have been on this journey for years. Just like in sobriety, I'm no longer available for comparing myself to people who've been on a sobriety journey for 10, 15 years. There's a huge difference. So when I made it my own and with your help and guidance and having the right shoes and coming across an awesome sports, (laughs) I was like, I'm my own version of a runner. I'm a runner when I run. I'm not a runner because of how fast I can run a mile. Although it's getting pretty fast now. (laughs) I am a runner because I choose to run three days a week. And I'm a yogi when I choose to do yoga four days a week. And I am a coach and I am a mommy. And like all of these different facets of me are my 
own definition of what a runner is or what a coach is. And I'm not trying to compete with anybody. That just feels like home for me. Oh, comparison is the death of all joy. Seeing other people's um, mile times on Strava, seeing how far they run and saying, I can't do that. I guess I'm not a runner. It, it steals our joy. So thank you for saying that, Kristen. You know, sobriety and running, they are not one size fits all. What works for me might not work for you and vice versa. I think that what really helped me stay sober in the beginning was learning how to be authentically me. And this is what you're talking about. You found what works for you in your new running journey. And it works for you. It doesn't look like what his plan looks like or what my plan looks like, but it is perfect for Kristen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I admire about you. The fact that the your ability to show up as you 100%. And I think that's a big roadblock for people because we succumb to peer pressure. We are people pleasers by nature, especially in addiction. And not being able to let go of who people want us to be, who people think that we are, who we used to be, it keeps us stuck drinking. It keeps us small. So I would love for you to teach us how we can be our most authentic self so that we can serve our highest good and so that we can let go of these restrictions that people place on us that keep us small. One of my favorite topics. (laughs) I love talking about this. I'm going to borrow a quote from Brene Brown because throughout my sobriety journey, I still have found myself trying to fit in or trying to people please. And about a year into my sobriety journey, I was really, really struggling with. Let me just preface this by saying I support all forms of recovery, but I was finding it hard to fit in with traditional 12-step recovery and was receiving a lot of flack for how open I am on social media about my sobriety. And I just felt like I didn't belong. I felt like I here I am sober and I'm healthy and I'm doing great, but I don't belong and I'm not connecting with these people and they're not super fans of me either. <laughs> and I came across this quote that said, true belonging by Brene Brown. True belonging doesn't require us to change who we are. True belonging requires us to be who we are. Also with the wisdom and knowledge of my girlfriend, who's a therapist, she said, Kristen, what you are seeking is seeking you. You do not have to conform. You do not have to shape shift into a square peg so that you fit into a square hole. You can be loud about your recovery. You can, you never have to say, I'm an alcoholic or I'm powerless if you don't want to for the rest of your life. You get to choose what recovery language defines you. So when I received that permission to no longer change who I was in order to belong, 
I was able to find where I belonged just being myself. Same with on social media. When I first came into the world of, I'll use TikTok, for example, I'm sure my kids were mortified because they were like, mom, you're in your 40s. Why are you on TikTok? (laughs) But then I started building a community and meeting. They have a huge sober and recovery community. So as I started to broaden this community, I just fell in love with giving value, offering tips, tools, resources. It became something that I was celebrated for being authentic, celebrated for saying I didn't fit in in traditional recovery, celebrate instead of being like admonished or we don't talk about that. (laughs) I was free to talk about all the things. You know, sometimes I <laughs> I catch a little flack or, you know, everyone has haters, I guess. And that's okay because I believe two things can be true at the same time. And at the end of the day, I love that everybody is free to choose what works for them, what makes them feel supported, loved, connected, and Nowadays, there are so many possibilities out there. And I love that. I love that for the recovery community and the healing people looking for healing spaces, similar to healing from trauma. There are now, there's tapping, there's meditation, there's yoga for trauma specifically. So there there are so many different ways to come as you are, to come as you are as gorgeous and beautiful and brilliant and shiny and juicy as you are. Just show up. Just show up. What you are seeking is seeking. Oh, I love that. And it takes so much courage and bravery to do that. But once you do, it's the best feeling in the world. It is so freeing to be around the people that your tribe, the people that support you, the people that get you, the people that you love to talk to, all the people inside the recovery community and and the running community, we get each other. We don't have to pretend anymore. You know, a lot of times the people that we hang out with in inside our, you know, regular circles of friends and families, they don't get it because they're not in recovery. So just having this community is everything to me. Having friendships like you mean everything to me. And I, I love it when somebody with a big personality shows up as their authentic self. I see that in all of your videos, me being able to show up as my authentic self has been eye-opening because I'm like, huh, I didn't know that about myself or (laughs) wow. You know, I love the sober Amber so much better than the drunk Amber. So Kristen, this has been such a fun conversation. I just want to ask you before I let you go about your first race that you've signed up for. So how are you training for that? What goal do you have? And how are you feeling about your first race? (laughs) I'm so excited. So I signed up for that race. Um, when we did our podcast recording, 
which I think was like December 28th or it was before the very beginning of the year. Your advice to me was just sign up for something and then, you know, work toward it. And I thought, all right. So I found a 5K locally and it is the third weekend of March. And I've been doing couch to 5K three to four days a week. And I'm up to eight minutes of running and then a five minute walk and then eight more minutes of running and then a five minute cool down. So eight minutes of running (laughs) sounds pretty small, but from the perspective of where I was in say November, that's a real big deal. And I just, I've found awesome music that I run to. It amazes me how much it's become part of my life and something that I I look forward to. I'm like, oh, I have a, you know, a presentation later in the week and I need some good material. I'm going to go for a run, which I never thought I would say, but I feel like the progress on the app is building up so beautifully to make me feel like this 5k will be not only doable, but pleasurable. And when I look at the three to three and a half miles I do on a weekly basis, three times a week. I'm like, well, you already do that three times a week. So why wouldn't you be able to do a 5k? That's basically what that is. So the, the ability is already there. The competitive mind isn't there for me. There is only the goal of showing up and completing this race. And my son's doing it with me. So I'm super stoked about that to do something special with him. So it's, and I I know now that running is in my bones. It's not like I'm going to do this 5k and then scrap running. Oh no, it's in my bones. The, just like yoga is in my bones. Now running is too. (laughs) Oh, I love that. And I dream one day of running 5k's with my kids when they get a little bit older. So I am so excited for you. I'm so thrilled that you have found running to be so joyful and providing so many benefits to you to complement your sobriety, your coaching, your whole entire life. Thank you for sharing your story. If people want to get in touch with you, learn more about you or follow you, how can they do that? The easiest like shortcut to me and all of what I put out in the world is probably social media. So on Facebook, Kristen Fuller, on Instagram and TikTok, both I'm coach Kristen F or Fuller. (laughs) And also my website, forwardprogressionnow.com. Thank you for everything that you do for the recovery community. You are one of the most beautiful souls I have ever met. I am not kidding. I adore you, Kristen. Thank you for being my guest today. It's been my pleasure to talk to you. My pleasure too, Amber. Thank you so much for having me and for being in my life. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Recovery Roadrunners podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Kristen has so much to teach us. I'm always watching her on Facebook and Instagram, gaining insights, inspiration from her. So please watch her videos. You will not be disappointed. And if you want to sign up for coaching with me and Vinny, go to recoveryroadrunners.com, click on coaching. We do have some exciting announcements coming up about March Madness and the next steps for our coaching program. 
quit like a runner. So thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll see you next week. Bye.